Good afternoon and welcome to Free to Be Faithful. I'm moderator Kip Allen. Free to Be Faithful is a religious liberty education and awareness program created by the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod in response to increasing governmental incursions into religious life. People of faith and our institutions have come under increasing attack in recent years from secular sources. One year ago in April, President Trump signed an executive order promoting free speech and religious liberty. This executive order reversed a number of Obama-era regulations impacting the Agriculture Department Department of Justice, Defense Department, and Health and Human Services. The order was welcome news to people of faith who felt that consciences were being violated by the prior administration's mandates. What exactly did President Trump's executive order achieve? What did it not achieve? The Family Research Council has issued a report on this topic, and I speak with report's author, Travis Weber, on today's Free to Be Faithful. Welcome to the program, Mr. Weber. Thanks for having me on. Mr. Weber, you have got uh, quite a lot of credentials to speak on this issue. Could you give me a little bit about your background? Sure. Well, in my prior life, I served in the Navy as a pilot, um, actually at Tinker Air Force Base in Oklahoma City. Mm-hmm. After going to law school, I practiced civil rights and criminal defense law for several years before transitioning to the religious freedom work that I do now. So it's a it's a bit of a, a varied background. Um, the interesting thing is a lot of the religious freedom issues we're seeing now concern the military, and so um, it, it's that's helpful to have um, having have served. I can um, relate to the way the military operates and understand the di- dynamics around those issues. In addition to the issues in the broader society that we're addressing, religious freedom is important in all these areas, and we're going to continue to attempt to do our best to protect it in all these areas. I think a lot of us were hopeful when President Trump issued his executive order, but perhaps skeptical that anything would actually happen. Uh, you know, we've seen a lot of talk in the past and a lot of in action. But your report seems to indicate that quite a bit has happened, even though a lot of still has to go on. Now, for example, the report indicates that something like 44 schools that provide education for more than 148,000 students are continuing to operate because of that. And that certain umbrella groups are, that are providing 13, almost 14 million people with health care and other services are also continuing. So what exactly happened here? What, what did it reverse and what is it changing? Sure. Um, as you say, it, it does require a little bit of digging to understand the impact and, and the framework around these issues properly. But basically, um, the executive order was issued last May 4th. The order itself directed that religious freedom be protected in the federal government. It did not lay out a specific text articulating how this was to happen in every agency, right? So for, for some folks who looked at that, uh, they said... Um, you know, this doesn't address all the issues we're tracking. It, we need to address more. And, and in terms of addressing all the issues, we would agree. I mean, there's a number of religious freedom issues that need to be addressed, and, and we do want them to be addressed. But we understood that the executive order was a starting point. It was directing the agencies to protect religious freedom. And as we look throughout the course of the last year, we can see how many agencies have followed through in protecting religious freedom. Uh, we're still we're still following up with others to see that that happens, but we can celebrate the ones that have protected religious freedom. I think the prior administration's view uh, toward religious freedom was that if freedom of conscience somehow violated what they believed to be the proper agenda, 
the conscience had to give way. One thing I noticed, for example, is that the executive order affected the Department of Agriculture, which surprised me a little bit until I read into it. And it seemed that there was a um, gentleman by the name of Donald Vanderboon who has a small packing business in Michigan, uh, meatpacking, and uh, he uh, believes in, in the traditional type of marriage, man and woman. And he had actually put some uh, pamphlets supporting this in the, in the uh, break room for his employees. They didn't have to read it, but it was there for them if they wanted to. Then FDA, um, then USDA inspectors came by, as they do for normal, for uh, to inspect the, the meatpacking plant to make sure it's following the proper health rules. And then threatened to shut him down because of those, because of those uh, pamphlets, not because he was violating any health codes, but because they didn't like the pamphlets. Yeah, I mean, it is an example of of something, you know, that that it seems almost silly on the face of it. Most people would look at this and say, what is the USDA doing policing this area? Um, You know, it's our first question. And then second, are they even doing it correctly? You know, so this situation... It was one in which, um, yeah, under under the Obama administration, you had officials saying this was harassing, uh, leaving a, a pamphlet out that that supported marriage between a man and woman somehow violated an anti-harassment policy. It's kind of ridiculous, but that was a theory. And uh, Mr. Vanderboon had no relief under USDA officials under the Obama administration. And, and uh, it's unacceptable as a matter of a matter of religious freedom in principle and legally, you know, he, he's protected in, in, in voicing his views on this issue. Uh, so um, thankfully, uh, the, the May 4th executive order from last year, on the heels of that, the USDA followed up with a policy statement, more specific guidance, and then ultimately a, 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 a series of questions and guidance on its website, clearly stating that the people in Mr. Vanderbilt's situation, in so many words, are protected on issues of sexuality when they express their views on them. This is great news. And this is the type of thing we really want to see happen across the board and other agencies, you know, because as a matter of principle and law, um, we need to learn to tolerate and hear different opinions. Uh, and that goes for, you know, everyone, regardless of their specific views on an issue, they're entitled to voice those views, express them. And uh, Mr. Vanderboon uh, should should be able to also. It's he doesn't give that up just because he um, you know he goes into business for himself and and you know he's he's I mean as we note he's employing a number of people in his area and for the government to even contemplate shutting his business down, which is what would happen if the inspectors were removed, uh, basically forcing him to compromise his his speech or shut his business down is it, absurd. Uh, that's the type of thing that uh, that no one should be should be okay with, and we're glad to see this resolved under President Trump's USDA, and we're continuing to see hopefully see this type of situation resolved elsewhere. We still got some ongoing situations in DOD, but we want to see this continue to to develop across the, the federal government. Well, one area I think where we have seen it uh, that is very very encouraging is that uh, FEMA has recently 
revised its rules regarding uh, the uh, regarding uh, having religious institutions be eligible for damage uh, for damage funding if they are damaged in a uh, in a disaster before they were not even though that many of them were involved in disaster relief themselves I believe FEMA said something to the effect of 80 percent of all relief supplies to the victims of the two devastating hurricanes that we had here in mainland US were funneled through religious organizations yeah, this is a huge area that, that a lot of people are just quite unaware of. The the role of religious organizations in assistance post-disaster uh, or in the midst of disaster, you know, post-catastrophe, hurricane, earthquake, that type of thing. Many, many religious organizations and even churches themselves are providing crucial services, whether they open their doors to temporarily house people, serve as a launching point for supplies, uh, they're really contributing goodwill in dollars uh, by the services they're offering and in other ways. So, you know, it makes sense to, to protect their role, protect this good work that for the good of the community and our society. And, you know, th- th- these changes in FEMA really help do that. Uh, they bring everyone onto a level playing field. In part, they're based on a Supreme Court decision last year that, that dealt with whether a a church in Missouri could be excluded from a government program. Yeah, that was one of ours. To, that was one of ours, reason, Trinity Lutheran. There, see, there you go. I mean, it's impacting you all closer to home than 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 I'd even thought of. But this this case set the stage for a ruling uh, in which the court said that that governments cannot d- exclude religious entities from public programs just because they're religious, right? So that principle when played out in the FEMA context, helps these religious entities play a role in, um, in, in all the good work they're currently doing. Well, I think the ruling actually said uh, to the effect that uh, while, while government can be, should be neutral toward faith, it should not be hostile to it. And the Missouri law that you were referring to was definitely hostile. It said, no, you can't apply because you're religious. Yes, and, and you know, I think it was, it was based on a um, uh, really, you know, just um, a bad understanding of the role of religion in public life, overly restrictive misinterpretation of the idea that government, you know, can't establish a religion. A lot of this is sort of strayed from the proper original understanding of that, and it's manifested now in these ideas of hostility towards religion. And absolutely, this is a good ruling. And I think it'll have good implications in a lot of areas. Well, another area where uh, we've seen a marked change, at, you know, I, one thing I do is I follow a lot of court cases. And uh, as you know, there are a number of, of religious freedom cases now pending before the Supreme Court. They've even been argued we're simply waiting for the ruling. But the government, for the first time, has been issuing amicus briefs on behalf of the religious groups. Certainly, certainly that's the case. When you look at the way the Obama DOJ and Solicitor General approach these issues at the court versus President Trump's DOJ and Solicitor General. Under President Obama, famously, when arguing in the same-sex marriage case, his Solicitor General was asked whether schools could be forced to compromise their beliefs on marriage and sexuality if if the court ruled for uh, same-sex marriage. And he admitted, yeah, they they might. Uh, This is going to be an issue, he said. This is unacceptable for a Solicitor General to be conceding the freedom of schools and those to operate according to their beliefs in that argument. Thankfully, uh, President Trump's Solicitor General, 
done a great job in, in understanding and arguing and advocating for the administration and the American people at the Supreme Court. Uh, most recently, uh, you know, cases of note to, to us, the Jack Phillips case, Masterpiece uh, Cakes, in which this uh, small business owner, Baker, is being forced to, to, to com- being compelled to, to proclaim a message against his beliefs in violation of the First Amendment free speech protections and also his religious freedom being violated by being forced to do this. So we have DOJ weighing in on his, fa- on his side before the court. The court is going to issue a ruling in that case within the next month and a half. Uh, by the end of June, and this will have an impact in a number of areas. We're really hoping the court rules for Jack Phillips here. As are we. You mentioned uh, also the impact on the military. Uh, This is an area of of very vital concern to the LCMS. We do have an office of ministry to the armed forces. We have many, many chaplains serving with the military. Uh, We have had a relationship with the military for many, many years. In fact, I think one of the very first chaplains during the Revolutionary War was a Lutheran. And uh, we have seen a movement that violated some of the very basic tenets of not just our faith, but of many of the faiths, including Jewish and uh, and others, Jewish and Catholic. Uh, now there seems to be, hopefully, a change coming. Could you go into that a little bit? I know that you've seen it. Our uh, director of the uh, our director for the mission to the ministry to to the armed forces is a retired Navy captain. I know he's seen it, and uh, we hear the stories. So wh- what are you seeing? Yeah, so this is an area we're still we still are monitoring, uh, especially close, and um, you know, continuing to track. The we're seeing some progress. The um, the case of Colonel Bohannon, a, a Air Force Colonel, distinguished career. He uh, was was forced to sign a certificate of appreciation for a same sex spouse against his beliefs uh he was he was asked to do this and he said look i can't do my conscience but here someone else is going to sign it so he was ready to meet the need of a signed certificate the air force was going to provide that he was going to be opted out of the process and it looked like it would be resolved nevertheless the person receiving the certificate complained this resulted in an equal um, opportunity investigation against him finding that he had discriminated the analysis finding he discriminated was botched. Uh, it failed to understand or account for religious freedom protections currently on the books and apply them to the situation. It just blindly concluded that he had discriminated and this was unacceptable. And thankfully now the, the Secretary of the Air Force has signed off on the decision, proved the decision that overturns that lower botched ruling and, under, and, and, and concludes rightfully that religious freedom law protects Colonel Bohannon, including the religious freedom law articulated in President Trump's executive order of, uh, from last May, uh, understanding the policy, the policy priority that that executive order gave religious liberty. The, the, conclusion, the concluding opinion in Colonel Bohannon's case cites that executive order and relies on the framework laid out by Department of Justice under, uh, articulating how the Religious Freedom Restoration Act protects religious freedom and how Colonel Bohannon should be protected. So thankfully we have the Secretary of the Air Force under President Trump uh, getting this case right. And that's an example of, of a good turn of events. We, there are other things we're still monitor still tracking still unacceptable developments in other areas we have currently a a chaplain down at fort bragg 
who who is under investigation for referring a same-sex couple to someone else, to he opting out of, of being able to oversee services that they wanted. Uh, he opted out and, and made sure they, they still got what they needed. He just didn't want to be part of the process. The Southern Baptist chaplain, whose own faith denominations, tenets, prohibit him from doing this, he didn't want to do it. Everything was followed in this case. Nevertheless, the Army is still investigating, and this is unacceptable. And I really think it, it shows sort of a mindset that's been pervasive amongst bureaucrats. Some, uh, you know, some, some people are holdover folks from the Obama administration, but this is broader than that. This is a, an elitist mindset, sort of an academic, politically correct mindset that just blindly follows some idea about non-discrimination. Now, without an understanding of religious freedom law or principles or policy that should be at play here, and it's unfortunate because then people like this chaplain, Chaplain Squires, uh, Army chaplain, get caught in the net. We're, we're, we're following this very closely, and we're going to do what we can to resolve this in favor of Chaplain Squires. Uh, I believe the Trump administration wants to resolve these things well, protect religious freedom. It's just a matter of following up and keeping up with everything that's going on. I've discussed both uh, Chaplain Squire's case and uh, the Bohannon case with our with uh, 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 with Craig Mueller, who's our director of uh, mission to the armed forces, and he's following this very closely as well. The thing that he said to me that just blew me over on both these cases was that both uh, Colonel Bohannon and Chaplain Squires not only were following federal law, but also following the military regulations on what they should do. They violated no regulations. Yeah, th that's why this is just so absurd. I mean, these are by-the-book um, uh, officers, by-the-book service members who, are, who want to do the right thing, do their jobs well, uh, treat everyone with dignity and respect, yet they're not going to violate their consciences in doing so. And I think, you know, Chaplain Squire's case legally is very strong. We'll see what, what, what the Army decides to do. But, um, yeah, I mean, this is very much the case. Mike Berry, an attorney at First Liberty Institute, is representing Chaplain Squires, and I think he'll do a good job. And this is something that we need to bring, you know, make sure the public knows about and uh, and communicate to everyone involved that this type of violation of his religious freedom is just unacceptable. Also, lots going on with the Department of Health and Human Services. Can you uh, explain that a little bit? Sure. Um, you alluded to numbers of those protected earlier in our conversation, and that is really where the, the meat of this plays out. Going back to the Obama administration, a number of entities and individuals had, had been involved in litigation, years-long litigation against the federal government, by, because they were being forced to violate their consciences by... Uh, being forced to, to be involved in providing abortion-causing drugs and services and contraceptives as part of the HHS regulations under Obamacare. Now, the government was informed of their objections, nevertheless persisted, refusing to really give them a full accommodation, full religious exemption, despite exempting and grandfathering all sorts of other entities, including major corporations. It really made no sense, yet the government was forcing the little sisters of the poor these elderly nuns who are trying to care for the poor into violating their, trying to force them to violate their consciences. So this is a major issue. The May 4th executive order made mention of this specifically. HHS has followed through with a rule 
that protects and finally gives a serious religious accommodation to all these entities. Unfortunately, activists are still suing the government over this rule, over the accommodation itself, but the administration has made clear it wants to protect these entities, and that's who I'm alluding to when I mention the numbers of those protected. Those are the ones covered under this rule, though it's still in litigation. They're better off, and they're, they're not going to be harassed by HHS itself now. And you have um, a number of entities who've been involved in suits, but the, the, you have uh, national organizations like Catholic Charities, which have entities involved in these lawsuits, but Catholic Charities themselves stands to be affected and, and serve many, many millions who are now able to continue receiving service and on better footing because uh, of the administration, the Trump administration's HHS and the way it's tackled these issues. So it really stands to be commended there. You know, just one manifestation of religious freedom protections coming from this May 4th executive order. Well, we might say it's a good start, uh, but what still needs to be done? What is left undone? And where should we go from here? Yeah, and as I mentioned, we've been reviewing some of the successes, but you know, I've also mentioned we are going to continue to monitor what needs to happen. And that that means you have a lot of, um, Obama-era regulations on the books, uh, Department of Housing and Urban Development, um, other HHS regulations, Department of Labor regulations, General Services Administration regulations, which prohibit some form of discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity. Now, these do not have exemptions or, or provisions for religious freedom, and so they're a real threat to forcing people to violate their consciences in those areas by not having proper religious freedom protection. So religious freedom uh, exemptions and provisions need to be added to or need to be issued to modify these current regulations, some form of that. Uh, the, the regulations could be repealed themselves that would deal with the religious freedom problem. But, but either way, you've got a, a, a body of regulations out there which is a threat to religious freedom, and we're going to continue to work uh, to, to make sure that religious freedom is protected in all these areas. What about uh, legislatively? What needs to be done legislatively, both at the federal and the state levels? Well, one of the things that, that we're doing, and, and there wasn't uh, too much uh, mention of it here, we actually discussed it previously, but the, the adoption provider area, um, and, and my, my writing on adoption provider religious freedom, um, this is a big issue now. At the state, states have been passing these. Oklahoma just recently passed one, but we're going to continue to press for passage of the Child Welfare Provider Inclusion Act at the federal level. It's very important that no uh, child is, is turned away from an opportunity to be adopted because some religious entity is out of the marketplace or a parent can't go to one of these entities because they can't find one that agrees with their religious beliefs. Unacceptable to force them out of the marketplace and leave kids and families uh, worse off. So this is a big push for us. We're going to continue to follow up on Chaplain Squire's case and cases like that in the military. And, um, uh, and, and I, as you mentioned earlier, Tony uh, being appointed to the U.S. Commission for International Religious Freedom, 
our, we've focused on international religious freedom, but we're going to continue to, to, to push into that area to, to do more to protect religious freedom around the world. These are only some of the areas that we're going to be focused on at FRC. It's a vital area, and as you pointed out, the uh, the Commission of International Religious Freedom uh, does does issues its annual reports. It issued one uh, toward the beginning of this month, and it is not especially good in terms of what's going on around the world. In fact, it's rather frightening, and I know that you and other organizations are working at it. And well, I think one of the things we need to do is to let the public as a whole know what the status is of religious faith and religious freedom, both in the U.S. and abroad. One way to do it, I think, is by monitoring, for example, your website. Can you give the public a little bit of information about how to access that and find out what's going on? Yeah, so it's um, frc.org. FRC.org is our website. The publication we've been discussing today, you can you can go to that website, FRC.org slash executive order. You can find the publication there. And, and on the FRC website, you can find material about our other issues and areas and, um, you know, our positions on issues, publications, op-eds, links to resources and videos that we produced, and just a host of things. And just on a personal note, I, I, I will point out, I check into that website every day. And uh, this is one way where I find out what's going on. And indeed, there are still many, many issues and a lot going on that we still don't know about. And uh, that's, I think, one of the frightening things are when we are caught unaware of new, of new challenges to us. Uh, we're seeing a lot of it, for example, in college campuses. No, very, very much so. And, you know, there, there's a host of good groups out there who are focused specifically on the campus issue. We are um, not directly focused on that, but to the degree it implicates free speech, freedom of religion, which it does, you know, for student groups, for religious schools, and the principles underlying those those protections, we're very much engaged and aware of the challenges and dangers of this, especially when you look at the hostility to free speech, the inability to tolerate different views, in some cases manifested in anti-Semitism on campuses. I know my colleague Chris Kasich has done a good paper on uh, anti-Semitism on campus. This is a huge issue, and... Um, uh, we want to stand with the freedom of everyone to express themselves without fear of, of bodily harm or any type of restriction on their expression. And that's something that I think we, we need to to really examine. I think there is a fear of people to speak up, not just because of they might be socially ostracized or friends will say bad things about it, but as you pointed out, there is a very definite element of physical threat. Yeah, I mean, we, we've seen this on campuses with um, activists attacking uh, people, even like Charles Murray on campus with uh, harassment of speakers. I just saw something the other day about a, um, a pro-life speaker who was threatened, you know, in a, in, in a menacing manner. I mean, you know, of course, you have to have a line between the, the ability to protest and, 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 and the regulation of threatening activity. But, you know, certainly we're aiming for more than just a simple, only the legal protection for free speech and freedom of expression. We want a culture in which people tolerate others' views, uh, they listen to them, they may not agree, and they may rebut them, but there's a back-and-forth debate, exchange, and even argument that's all okay. We don't want people stifling other views, shutting them down, refusing to listen to them and refusing to accept that they may have something to contribute to a debate or discussion.
Mr. Weber, I want to thank you very much for explaining the findings of your report and what it is that we face. Indeed, we are, have a lot to do still, but it looks like at least we're off to a good start. Yes, and thank you for having me on. You've been listening to Free to be Faithful, produced by Worldwide KFUO, the official broadcast ministry of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Thank you for listening and supporting Free to be Faithful on Worldwide KFUO.